were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And then David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him down and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand." When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David." You may be seated. We'll take a moment to reflect on God's word. We have this tradition at Christ Community Church of having that moment of silence before the sermon. And we like to have those little moments, not just because it's nice to just sit quietly while your kids are in childcare, which it is. Um, But because we really believe that the voice that you need to hear from, the voice that I need to hear from, is, is God's voice. We need to hear from His Word. And I do hope that He speaks to you today through what I have to share and through uh, how I try to explain and, and apply this passage. But we're trying to set off, put some distance uh, res- respectfully between <laughs> what I have to say and what, what God has said and caused to be written down infallibly in his word. Um, I hope what I have to say is good, but it will not be infallible. So in our house, uh, in, in the Kennedy family, there's a couple books and kind of a couple DVDs that we have that we just keep coming back to over and over again. I mean, and you, you may have these uh, in your life or in your own house. I mean, like the, the DVD case, you know, the plastic is like falling off because it's been handled so many times. And, you know, the book, the pages are all dog-eared and the binding's like worn out and you have to get four different copies over the life of the book in your family. Um, we... The children's Bible that we have, the Jesus Storybook Bible that we give to kids when they get baptized, uh, when the babies get baptized, we give them to the family uh, here at the church. So sorry, guys, you're not going home with uh, Bibles today. The, uh, but uh, the, this Jesus Storybook Bible is, is great. And the, the one story that we keep coming back to all the time, like as our kids were growing up, is this David, David and Goliath story. And, and it's, it's just great. Uh, and especially in this children's Bible, because the, the picture of Goliath is like so big, it goes on both pages and you have to kind of turn it sideways, you know, and you can kind of get behind the book and like kind of talk in Goliath's voice like, oh, I'm going to get you. And so we would do that with our kids a lot. And um, we would keep coming back to this story. And we keep coming back to all kinds of different stories. And, it, and I think the reason that we keep coming back over and over again. The reason that I can rewatch a movie that I've seen a hundred different times and um, I'll get reacquainted with it or I'll get surprised and delighted by some line or, or, or something in the plot, some twist, 
is because we're leaky vessels. As human beings, we're forgetful. We need to be reminded of the same stories and we want to hear the same things over and over again because it just doesn't stick the first time. We need to have it driven even deeper down into our brains and into our hearts so we can remember these things. And I'm convinced that this very same forgetfulness, that that same ability to uh, forget that makes my daughter Hattie watch the same episode of Daniel Tiger like every day, five days in a row and still laugh, that that forgetfulness is the reason God has to keep showing the same story over and over again to his people throughout the whole history of redemption. You know, from Genesis 3 onward, God keeps retelling and reminding his people that he sees and that he saves. You know, in Egypt with Moses, God comes to Moses and the Egyptians are in slavery and God says, Moses, I'm just reminding you, I see and I'm going to save. Joshua is coming into the promised land, you know, and the spies, uh, Joshua and Caleb are, you know, they're terrified and they, they see, you know, all these Goliaths kind of running around in the land and they say, we, we look like ants. And God is reminding his people, he's speaking to his people at that moment. He's saying, don't forget, I see you and I will save. The disciples, you know, who are kind of cowering in fear, they just watched Jesus get buried in the tomb and they're wondering what they're going to do next. They feel weak, they feel helpless, they feel afraid. God wants to say, I see you. And I will save. Just wait. God's people keep forgetting that God is real, that he's present, that he is able to save. And we as a church, his modern day people, we have the same affliction. We wake up in the morning, we read the paper, we kind of scroll through our news feeds, and we forget that God sees us and that God has promised to save us. And that's why he puts the same pattern in front of us over and over and over again and kind of retells the same story throughout salvation history, why he keeps kind of playing those same chords over and over and over again. I will send a redeemer. I will send a rescuer. I see and I will save. That's how we're approaching the passage this morning is we're looking at it, recognizing that this is part of this long retelling of the promise of God sending a rescuer and a redeemer to his people. The way the author has arranged the narrative, he's trying to highlight David, to kind of highlight David as this true king, this true warrior, this true rescuer, and kind of contrast him with Saul, who's the, the false king, the false rescuer. David, not Saul, is the kind of person God's telling us. He's the kind of person God uses to save so the story's about David, but in a deeper way, it's also about God. It's about how God works. It's about how God chooses to work and what kinds of people he chooses to use throughout salvation history. And God is repeating and reminding us of how he prefers to move and save and rescue and redeem. So what does he show us? How does God save? God saves through someone who sees God's glory, someone who speaks boldly, and someone who serves from a place of weakness. Those are our three points. Seeing God's glory, speaking boldly, 
serving in weakness. First, God saves, he rescues. His preferred method is to work through a person that sees God's glory at work in the world. You know, there's a deeper perspective behind our suffering, behind our challenges. There's a deeper perspective beyond the suffering of the Israelites as they're confronted with David. And the only one who sees this deeper perspective, who sees the threat of Goliath as an offense to God's honor, not just a threat to their nation, is David. David is the only one in this passage who's looking at the situation with God's eyes, with a perspective that's shaped by God's actions in history. So David understands who God is and what God has done and how God works. I mean, you just have to read, you know, we've been uh, kind of preaching through some of David's Psalms and you have this sense of David having this deep conviction down in his heart of who God is and how God works. And so David walks onto the scene and he's got the history in his mind of, of the exodus, of God rescuing Noah from the flood, of God being faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And he's remembering all these things. He knows who God is and he knows that God is the living God who's with his people. And so he sees this situation where Goliath is kind of walking up, stacking himself against the people of God. And this is the word uh, that the Bible uses over and over to describe how Goliath is uh, speaking to the Israelites. Verse 10, verse 26, verse 45, it says he's defying Israel. Now that word defy is a, it's a fine, it's a good translation. That is what he's doing. But what that word means uh, is you know, he's taunting them. He's insulting them. I mean, he's trash talking is, is what he's doing. He's mocking God's people. And what David understands is Goliath isn't just mocking God's people. When you mock God's covenant people, you're mocking God. David sees that this battle is actually about God's glory, not just about protecting God's people. As David says later, the battle is the Lord's battle. So he understands that Goliath is mocking God. And David reminds himself from, from salvation history, he knows Tower of Babel, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, king of Babylon, king Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, all these people, when a nation or a person sets themselves up against God and his people, God always wins. I always wins a hundred times out of a hundred. God wins. God will not be mocked. David knows this. David understands this. And so he sees and understands that the battle isn't about David versus Goliath. It's about Goliath versus God. And so David is walking out, not just to kind of grab glory for himself, but to be a part of God displaying his glory to the world. See what David says at the very end, right before he kind of smokes Goliath with the rock. Verse 46. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, right before he defeats Goliath. He says, Goliath, I'm going to fight you and I'm going to beat you. And this is why. So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. I'm not making a name for myself. I'm making God's name great. 
I want all the earth to know there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly, all the people here may know, all the Philistines, all the Israelites, that they would know that the Lord saves. This is about God's name. This is about God's reputation. This is about God's glory. What gets David up in the morning, what fires David up in this moment is that God's glory is being insulted. God's reputation is being impugned. And so David wants to set the record straight. Question. Why didn't anyone else see the situation this way? Why didn't anyone else see with the kind of God's glory perspective that David had? Well, and we see this all throughout. This is kind of this theme in um, 1 Samuel. The reason people didn't see is because they were looking with human eyes. They weren't looking with God's eyes. Remember uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7? He's got, uh, he's, God has taken Samuel to go look at all the sons of Jesse and he looks and he sees Eliab, the strongest brother, the big brother. And he's like, this guy's got to be the guy. He's got to be the next king. And God says to Samuel, don't look on his outward appearance. God does not see as man sees. What's the problem with the Israelites and Saul and the priests and all the heads of the households right now? Why can't they see what's really going on? Why don't they have faith like David has? They're seeing as man sees. They're looking at Goliath's size. It says in verse four, he's six cubits in a span, which is like nine and a half feet tall. They saw his armor, which is kind of the best, most impressive military technology that you can have at that time. And so they were so focused on outward appearances, they were so focused on the physical, they couldn't see the invisible God who has always sustained them miraculously, who is holding the entire world up at that very moment, who is giving everyone them, every one of them, Israelite and Philistine, breath to breathe in their lungs at that very moment. They couldn't see what God was doing. Uh, in the marriage conference that we had um, last weekend, uh, Paul Tripp talked about this tendency. And he used this word to describe that, that tendency to, to focus on outward appearances. He called it materialism. And what he means is not materialism like, you know, greed for lots of stuff, but materialism, meaning the belief that what we can see and what we can touch is all there is. That there's nothing beyond the physical. That there's nothing beyond uh, what you can taste and see and touch and own. That's a lie. There's an invisible spiritual reality that makes you and I move and live and breathe. And there's an invisible God to whom everyone must give an account. Nobody could see or understand that invisible spiritual reality. They were so focused on the material and I think this, this tendency, this kind of blindness, this materialism is the root of so many of our problems, so many of our struggles. I mean, often I have a conversation in my office or kind of out at a coffee shop with someone about um, a relationship that they're frustrated with, a person they're kind of sideways with, something in their history, some, some habit, some addiction, some kind of shame. What happens more often than not is that we don't have a sense in our pain, in our struggle of the invisible, great and mighty God who's seeing everything and orchestrating everything, who's working all things for, his, for our good and for his glory. 
And because we just focus on the person we're mad at or the situation that frustrates us, because we're so focused on the material and what's right in front of us, we miss the glorious God who's calling out to us, offering us rescue, offering us comfort, offering us help. But David doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just stop at, at seeing. He sees something, he notices something, and then he's moved to actually say something. Because God hasn't created his people just to be kind of casual observers of all the injustices in the world. God has created and called us to be people who act, who do something about injustice. And I know this might sound crazy, but the kind of action, the kind of activity that the Bible highlights over and over and over again and says, this is the powerful way that you move in the world as God's people. This is the powerful way that God acts and moves in the world. What is it? It's through speaking. I mean, it seems silly. It seems unlikely. But the simple act of speaking is one of God's preferred ways of rescuing and redeeming. God moves through someone who sees his glory and someone who speaks boldly. Now look at this theme. You can see the, the, the kind of the whole passage, all of chapter 17, you can just break it up in terms of the speeches in the passage. It's really just a, a kind of series of dialogues, a series of speeches. The whole thing gets set up by this problem of Goliath's speech. So the speaking of Goliath in verse 8 through 11, this kind of 40-day trash talk festival that, that Goliath puts on. Day after day, they go up to the line of battle and Goliath just hurls insults at them. So speech kind of sets up the problem. And then David hears in verse 23... And, and this is, we really have to pay attention to what's happening in kind of verses 23 through 26. Because David has been introduced in chapter 16. And if you're the original audience, and even you now, you, you're reading this story and you understand David isn't just shepherd David, he's King David. I mean, he's this important guy who's going to be the ruler of Israel. He's like Israel's master poet, master worship leader. He's this, this warrior king. And so he's got this big reputation. And the interesting thing is, is for a whole chapter, we haven't heard a single word from David. David's walking into this horrible situation with a corrupt king and a forgetful people. And now the situation with Goliath, and he hasn't said a word. We don't have one line of dialogue from David until this moment in verse 23. And what's the first thing that David says in the Bible? <laughs> These are David's first words. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And you're finally like, yes, someone's gonna say something. Someone's gonna step in. Way to speak up, David. But then immediately, his brother says, David, would you shut up? I mean, it's a typical older brother moment, right? Your little kid brother comes in and Eliab is just like, man, look at this kid running his mouth. What are you doing, David? And the, I love this. This is so, so funny because we, as the reading audience, we're like, yeah, no, David, keep speaking. Don't be quiet. And then David says, verse 29, what have I done now? Wasn't it just a word? And basically, you know, my translation is, can I just speak? 
Won't you just let me speak? Someone's got to speak. Don't shut me up and I won't shut up. I'm going to keep talking. I'm going to keep speaking. Someone has to say something. And his words persist. His speech spreads throughout the entire camp. You can't shut David up. And then the passage ends with speech. The speeches of David and Goliath, they're really the kind of high point of the entire passage. The fight really is just over in a second, right? It's like two sentences. But these speeches are awesome. You know, Goliath comes up and he's taunting David. Whoa, what am I, a dog, you little boy with a stick? And, uh, you know, I'll spread your flesh all over the fields. And, um, which is just fun to say when you're reading it to a little kid. And right now. Then this is what David says, verses 45 through 47. And just, I'm going to read it. And I want you to imagine like the Braveheart moment. You know, you've got the drums, you've got bagpipes maybe. Not accurate historically, but we'll imagine bagpipes in the background. You've got flags flying. This is what David says. Loud enough for Goliath to hear, loud enough for everyone to hear. This is what he says. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down. I will cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And you want to go, yes! I mean, it is this beautiful moment. Amen, David. This entire story moves on speeches. The rescue hinges on David speaking and refusing to be quiet. I want to submit to you that the reason why words play such an important part in this passage and in the whole Bible is because words are a big deal for God. They're a big part of the way he made the world. In fact, they are the way he made the world. He made everything by speaking. God said it, and it was. Sun, moon, stars, lights, stuff, (laughs) people. One of the first jobs God gives mankind is to speak and to name things. Speech is this kind of God-like creative activity. It's this powerful, powerful, powerful thing. The earth was created by words. In John 1, what we see that the world is being recreated, redeemed by the word, Jesus Christ who became flesh and blood and walked among us. In the book of Acts, you see that the kingdom of God is built through words, through preaching. And in Acts 4, 17 through 20, the authorities threaten Peter and John. They kind of call them away and they say, hey, you have to stop preaching about Jesus. You have to stop talking about Jesus. This is what Peter, James, and John say. They say, hey, judge for yourselves whether you think it's better for us to listen to you or to listen to God. We're going to listen to God. As for us, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. The early church said we can't stop speaking. And their speech toppled the Roman Empire. We're here today because they didn't stop speaking. 
God's kingdom moves and grows by speaking and preaching. We sang about it in in that first song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to any of them, it abides, it remains, it endures. The word is powerful. Uh, Martin Luther, someone asked him why the Reformation was able to spread so fast. This is what he said, I love this. He said, the word of God did all the work. This is his quote. What is Luther? I simply taught, I preached, I wrote God's word, otherwise I did nothing. Listen to this. While I slept or I drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever afflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. So for us, if it's true that God moves through speech, that God works through his words, that God rescues when his people speak, where have you been silent and you need to speak out? Is there a relationship? Is is there a situation where, where someone's speaking lies, where someone's believing lies about themselves? about the world God created, about God himself, about God's word, about the church. What is it? Is there some place where you need to speak in grace and truth, respectfully, kindly, that you need to speak out? Is there someone that you know that needs you to speak in love, that needs you to speak constructive words, uh, words that build up, words that encourage words that refresh. I mean, is there someone that's suffering and, and you just need to, you know, send them a text with, with, with some scripture in it. I mean, don't, don't preach a sermon to them. Uh, suffering people are tired, so they can't listen to your sermons or my sermons sometimes. But do you just need to, to, to speak a gentle word, a simple word, a word of encouragement? Don't remain silent. Speak. Do you trust that something simple, something unassuming, like a word, actually has the power to change someone's life. Now, that, that's the way God works, actually. He uses little things. He uses things like words. He uses weak things rather than the strong. That's his way of rescuing. And his method is to use people who see his glory, who speak boldly, but also who serve in weakness. And that's our third point. God saves through people who serve in weakness. In this passage, David, brave and bold as he might be, isn't a warrior, really, not yet. Now, even though we might have an idea of him as this kind of grown-up you know, warrior king, we, we, we have to see him as he's presented to us in the text. This is how the text describes him. He's not a strong, impressive person like Saul. He's not strong and impressive like Eliab, his brother. He's not strong and impressive like Goliath. Far from it. Verse 33, Saul says to David, Hey, kid, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. You're a scrawny little kid. And he's been a man of war from his youth. Hey, you're not a man. You're not a man of war. You're just a baby, snot-nosed kid. 
This is, this is what David has, this is how he's been described to us in chapter 16. You know, he's the runt of the litter. Paul talked about last week, he's like the, the goopy little kitten that was still left behind in the litter. He's the forgotten one. He's the one who is too small to go to war with his brothers. Now, you might object. You might say, well, Sam, doesn't it say that he killed lions and bears? I mean, that seems like a pretty, you know, pretty rough character. And I would say, yeah, but look how David himself describes that. David says, verse 37, yeah, I did all those things. And it's crazy because I'm a little kid, but it was the Lord who delivered me. It wasn't me who did it. I mean, I did it. God, you know, used me. But the crazy thing is, Saul, God delivered me. He delivered a weak shepherd kid. And so, and so God can deliver me now. David says, I know I'm a runt. I know I'm weak. I know I'm not able. But the Lord, and by the way, at this moment, he, he's using God's covenant name. Whenever you see L-O-R-D in capital letters, that's God's covenant name. That's Yahweh. That's I am. So David's saying, the covenant Lord, the powerful God who gave his name to his people, he was with me. He rescued me. The God who saves, the God who sees, the living and active God of the angel armies. He saw, he saved, he rescued me. I might be weak, but I am is strong. Everything David is not, I am, is. So, Saul, I'm going to put myself out there in my weakness because I am is my strength. And so David goes to Goliath in weakness, not in strength. He goes vulnerable. He goes without armor. I mean, Saul tries to kind of, you know, put some armor on him and give him a sword. And David goes, ah, I'm not going to go this way. So even when Saul tries to make him kind of, you know, strong, David says, I have to go in weakness. I have to go vulnerable. And so he walks up kind of defenseless, except for five stones in his pocket. And, and I think what's r- remarkable is it seems so improbable that David, weak little David, can take down big Goliath. That when you're reading the commentaries, uh, people try to explain it away in all these different ways. So, so one, one of the commentaries I read said, well, you know, actually, I mean, these stones, if you got really good at throwing them, I mean, you could throw them like 185 miles per hour. So these were like serious weapons. And that might be the truth. But the way that the text is presenting it is it's trying to say, David doesn't have strong weapons. <laughs> David doesn't have a sword or a spear or armor. David is coming in weakness because this is a miracle <laughs> what happens. You know, David could have blown a dandelion at Goliath, and I think it would have knocked him over all the same. Because the point isn't anything in David. The point isn't anything about his weapons. The point is that God is strong. That God rescues weak people who depend on him. Which is good news for us. If you feel like a weak person who's dependent upon God for everything. Now, this should sound familiar to us. And this is the way God works. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He's, he's describing the gospel. He's describing the story of Jesus. 
And he says, church, this is, this is the way it works. God chose what is low and despised in the world. He chose things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, you are in Jesus Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. God chooses the weak things. He uses the things that are not. He chooses the despised things to work his saving, rescuing purposes. That's the way he still chooses to work right now. I mean, think about it. God's plan A for rescuing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation is the church. The church uh, and churches like ours who actually believe what the Bible says, who take it seriously or are trying to uh, live under it as our authority, who believe what we do about marriage and, and, and our bodies and the way God created the world. I mean, we're not very influential right now. We're not very popular. <laughs> the things we believe seem silly. They seem foolish. They seem outdated to people. We're weak and lowly and despised. That's God's plan A. God's saying, that's who I want to use in the world. I mean, think about what we do every week. We come here, we sing and pray, and we speak to and we want to hear from an invisible God. We try to taste and see the glory that other people don't see. And in a world of uh, video and images, uh, we still choose to read books. Every week we read this book, and then we sit and listen to someone speak from the book. And explain the book. And we believe that God's words, not our feelings, are the ultimate authority. I mean, that's not popular. That's not an influential message. And we also believe that because this world is not all there is, we can actually lose everything in this world. We could lose status. We can use reputation. We can lose influence and power and pleasure. We can lose all of that. And it could still be gained for us on the other side of the veil. Because God has prepared an inheritance for his people that nothing can ever take away. It'll never spoil or perish or fade. This seems crazy. It seems foolish. It seems weak and mistaken and deluded. But that's not all. We also believe that there is a true king who is right now sitting on his throne and ruling this world. That there is an ultimate rescuer the heir of the throne of David, who though he was limitlessly powerful, took on human limitations to come to earth, not as a king first, but as a servant, being made in human flesh and blood. And because Jesus, the servant king, because he embraced weakness and embraced death, because he jumped into our story, because he became weak for us, because he became by choice what you and I are by nature, We can be freely and fully forgiven through no work of your own, but purely through his work. Because of that work, God is able to fully redeem people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not lose even one. Jesus' weakness, his suffering is his work. Do you see, God chooses to work through weakness. That's the plan. So when you feel weak, 
when you feel dependent, when you feel afraid, when you feel small, when you feel meek, you can rejoice because Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. If you feel opposed by the world, well, guess what? You're in good company. That's how God's people have felt anytime they've really been obedient to him throughout history. So it's okay because God says, you can be weak. I'll be strong. Do you see that king that this passage is speaking of? It's not David. It's Jesus Christ. That even then, way back in Israel's history, it was pointing towards the ultimate king, the ultimate rescuer. He's the king you and I are called to serve. His rescue is the rescue that we really need, not from Goliath, but from sin, from death, from hell. We need to be rescued from ourselves. And to the degree that you can get that story deep in your bones, you can remember it and let it shape your life, you'd have no need to, no need to fear the future, no need to worry about suffering, no need to worry about loss in this world because God can be strong for you because God says, I see and I will save. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's easy for us to forget We need to be reminded that you see. We need to be reminded that you save. We need to see you coming to earth to serve, stooping to die and suffer in our place. We need to understand the rescue that we really need. We thank you that um, for those who are in Christ Jesus, you have given us the rescue that we need that you've secured every blessing for us, that you're keeping it for us, and that through Christ and in Christ alone, we can have freedom and fellowship with God and with one another. Lord, help us to see that. Help us to trust in the true King, Jesus. Help us to glory and enjoy and worship Christ alone. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn.